Thank you, Joy. Thank you so much for your ministry and song. If you have your Bible with you tonight, we are in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we are this evening. The book of Acts at chapter 16. And uh, I want to begin reading in verse 11 of this chapter. We're not going to keep you very long this evening. But we certainly want to share with you what baptism is about and why indeed uh, these young people have felt the need uh, to be baptized by this particular means uh, this evening. But Acts chapter 16 and verse uh, verse 11. Actually, let's back up a little bit. Uh, let's go back to verse 9 and we'll read down to verse 15. Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, losing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothrakia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. (coughs) Excuse me. In our opening text this evening, we read of the conversion and the baptism of a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a resident of the city of Philippi, a city of Macedonia that is now located in the northeastern part of Greece. Lydia was effectively Paul's first European convert. She was a businesswoman. In all likelihood, she was a widow woman. Her name means travail. And given that she was uh, was a woman who headed a household but had no husband, we assume that her husband must have passed away. When we're first introduced to her here in this passage, we're told that she is, quote, a seller of purple. And purple to this day is the color of princes and of nobility. You may have noticed over this weekend that as the nation was celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, that many public buildings were lit up in purple color. Purple is the color of royalty. And this dates back way to, uh, way back to Roman times. No dye was more valuable Uh, than was the color purple. And uh, that was the dye in which Lydia traded. It was very hard to come by in biblical times. 
Indeed, it was very risky and dangerous to secure this dye. It was extracted by divers who would launch them, launch themselves into the sea and hold them, hold their breath for as long as they possibly could, and go down into the depths of the sea and try to gather as many shellfish as this dye could be extracted from as possible. And because of the danger involved, the price of this particular dye was high, and consequently, purple-colored garments became associated with nobility and the rich and with royalty. It really was a status symbol in that time. If you could wear purple in Bible times, you were somebody who was really on the up. It was rather the same in in the sense that people in our day sometimes wear designer clothing and their clothes are purposed to say something about them and about their status in society. You see, there is no new thing under the sun. So Lydia was a businesswoman. She was a woman of some material wealth. She was a woman of some renown, I should expect, in her circles. She was involved in the textiles industry in an area of work and in a time when uh, you know very much men were the captains of industry and commerce and businesswomen would have been something of a rarity. Now there's two basic thoughts I want to share with you tonight and I want you to grasp this evening as we consider the testimony of scripture concerning this woman Lydia. I want you to think first of all about how Lydia believed and then we want to think about how Lydia was baptized. Notice in verse 14 how Lydia believed. It says that a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now it's very interesting to me. That as the Bible opens up on the story of Lydia, it tells us two very important and key things about her. It tells us that she was a part of a woman's prayer group that met in the river or by the riverside near that city. We see that in verse 13. It says that there was on the Sabbath those who went out by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And Paul says we sat down, or Luke says we sat down and speak unto the women which resorted thither. So there was a woman's prayer group that met by the riverside just outside of the city of Philippi and Lydia was a member of that prayer group. And then verse 14, which we just read, says that she worshipped God. Now that's a very telling detail. It's a telling phrase for it indicates to us that she wasn't an atheist to begin with. I want you to get that. She wasn't someone who denied the existence of God. She wasn't an infidel. She wasn't someone who stood in defiance to the notion of God. You know, the likelihood was that she was converted to Judaism, possibly as a consequence of her marriage, but not necessarily so. But certainly she was not someone who you might describe as a complete heathen. You know, sometimes when we speak to people about their need of salvation, you know, they're thinking and sometimes they say, well, I'm not a complete heathen, you know. Well, Lydia wasn't a complete heathen. And there's a lot of people just like her. And maybe you're one of them here tonight. You know, maybe you've come to this meeting tonight and you believe in God. And you believe that the Bible may be the word of God. And you believe that Jesus is the son of God. You're not a complete heathen. But then you're not truly or really a Christian either. You see, there are lots of people like that in our society. People who perhaps go to prayer meetings. 
People who perhaps attend churches, who worship God in some way, in some place. And, and for many of them, theirs is a, a hatch them, match them, and dispatch them religion. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean they go along for uh, baptisms or christenings. They go along for uh, marriages and they go along for funerals. And they're very reverential and they're very, uh, you know, very open to the idea of the ceremony and what it represents and so forth. You see, it's easy to have, as perhaps Lydia had, something of a nominal religion, a faith in name only. And in reality, friends, if you have a nominal religion, and I fear that a great number of people in our society here in Northern Ireland subscribe to a nominal religion. They are Christians in name only, or Protestants in name only, or Roman Catholics perhaps in name only. Uh, But here's the reality. If you're into that kind of a religion, then from day to day, what really is going on there is that you are practically an atheist. Say, well, what do you mean I'm practically an atheist? I believe in God. Isn't that enough? You know, I, I go to church occasionally. Isn't that enough? You know, I, I would go at Christmas or Easter or, or at weddings or at funerals or at baptisms or christenings. I, I go at other times of the year, perhaps. You know, it's not like I'm a complete atheist. But friends, here's the thing. When God is not in our thoughts, when the word of God is not in our thoughts, in our daily lives, when it has no impact upon our daily business, when it has no control over me, over who I am, over how I think, over what I do. Understand that I'm living for all intents and purposes as though there is no God. I may not be by profession an atheist, but I am in practice an atheist. I'm living as though there is no God. Now Lydia was a religious lady. She prayed. uh, She worshipped. Others are religious and perhaps don't pray. Uh, others are religious. They, the term that we like to say, use today is I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm a spiritual person, whatever that means. There are other people who would be religious or spiritual, but they don't subscribe to the faith of the Bible. And, and consequently, because they aren't obedient to the truth of the gospel, they fall short of God's standard for their lives. But I want you to notice what happened to this lady. Evidently, she was at this riverside. She was praying, and Paul came along, and the evangelist came along. And notice it says there that she heard us in verse 14. Right in the heart of that verse, it says, Here was this woman who worshipped God, and she heard us. She gave a hearing to the apostles. She gave a hearing to the truth of the gospel. You know, she opened up her ears and opened up her mind as Paul shared the good news of how Christ had come, how that he had died for them upon Calvary's cross, how that he was buried and rose again the third day as a victor over sin and over death and over hell, and how that if they would put their trust in him, if they would surrender their lives to him, they could be forgiven of their sins, they could be born again, and have eternal life. Now we might wonder why a woman who believed in God already, a woman who was evidently to some degree wrapped up in her religion, might wish to give ear to two evangelists such as Paul and Timothy. And here's why, and I want you to get this this evening. A belief in God is not enough. Did you hear what I said? A belief in God is not enough. You go to the book of James. James talks about true faith. 
And in the midst of that passage in which he speaks of true faith in James 2, James 2 he says this, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. You see, if you say to me, well I believe in God, I'm not a complete heathen, you know. I believe in God. I can say to you, well, well and good, but the devil also believes and trembles. He's got the good sense to tremble when he thinks about God. He has, a, has an anticipation of his judgment. He realizes that someday his time is going to be up and God is going to cast him into the lake of fire. But you, you stand apart from God and you're unmoved at the idea of the knowledge of God. You're unmoved by the truth of the gospel of Christ and you refuse it and you reject it and then you say, but I believe in God. What's the Bible say? Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. If belief in God alone was enough to satisfy the heart, let me tell you something, this world would be a very happy place. Do you get the impression tonight that the world in which we live is a very happy place? You see, far more people believe in God or a God of some kind than don't. And so, if you think about it, if belief in God alone was sufficient to satisfy the soul, to, uh, to put a man at rest and at peace with God and his fellow man, well, this world should be a very happy, contented place. You know, and yet with all, even though millions of people ascribe to a belief in God around the world, whether they're Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or, or Roman Catholic or Coptic or Islamic or Jewish or, or whatever title they might put upon their faith, even though Millions of people, billions of people all around ascribe to believe in God. Yet with all, this world is a world of trouble. How can that be if belief in God is enough? You see, you may believe in God, but the devils themselves believe. And as I say, they have the good sense to tremble. And in that respect, many a man or many a woman is worse off than a devil. The second thing I would say to you is this. Not only is belief in God not enough, but religion is not enough. Religion is not enough. You see, religion is a poor substitute for a living and vibrant relationship with God through Christ. You know, you may say, well, I belong to a church. Church membership is not enough. You know, I used to pastor in North Belfast. North Belfast is a rough spot. If you've never been to North Belfast, I suggest you never go. Uh, it's, that's where I grew up, I can say that. There's not much to commend North Belfast. It's a tough, rough place. And I ministered with some people who were rather rough around the edges. And one fellow, he, he became a Christian. He got saved. He was heavily involved in drugs. And, uh, and he got saved. And he was glad for his salvation. Uh, but, you know, he, he was just this larger-than-life personality. He was a very loud character. He told me one day, he says, I went down, Pastor, to the Methodist church the other day to pick up uh, my daughter. He says, and I came in, and, and, and a woman uh, was sitting behind the door as I came in, and she looked at me, and, uh, and she said something. She says, he wasn't, she wasn't very kind, she wasn't very welcoming. And so I said to her, Mrs., are you saved? And she says, I, I am a member of the MWA the Methodist Women's Association. She says, I'm a member of the MWA. 
He says, Mrs., I don't care if you're a member of the UDA. He says, are you saved? You see, that's the issue. It doesn't matter what religious organization or associationship or church denomination you belong to. At the end of the day, you need to be saved because the Bible says you need to be saved. And Lydia discovered that her Judaism, whilst perhaps no doubt far better than what she'd experienced under paganism, was not nevertheless bringing her peace to peace of heart. It wasn't bringing her the satisfaction of soul that she longed for and craved. Friends, listen to me. Religion apart from Christ may momentarily scratch the itch, but it can never satisfy. Do you ever have an itch that just won't go away? You know, last, last week my wife and I were on holiday in, in Greece, and you know, we got, I got bit up bad by mosquitoes, she did too. And you know, you'd get these lumps that come out and it just itch, wouldn't they? And you'd scratch him and scratch him, and then they'd die off. You know, you'd feel like it was, that was it gone, and then it would come back and you'd scratch it. And the thing is, it's just always there. Now, I can momentarily scratch that itch, and for a moment I can relieve the pressure of its feeling upon my person, but it's not satisfying on the long run. And that's how it is with religion. Religion may well make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. It may give us a little more esteem perhaps within a certain community. It may make me feel that somehow or other perhaps I'm even a little better than others are. Or maybe even a little better off than others are. But at the end of the day, it is not sufficient to satisfy the great need of my soul. You see, Lydia found no savior in her religion. No message of the cross in her religion. No place where her sin could be forgiven forever was part of her belief system. No sense in which she could know that she was right with God. She needed more than Judaism. She needed more than ceremony. She needed more than form. And so Lydia listened to these two simple gospel preachers, Paul and Timothy, as they came to the riverside. And they declared, no doubt there, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. They no doubt cried out there that Christ died for us. There's no question that they came and told of a Savior who was able to reach and to touch the souls of men and to forgive their sins and to save them for time and eternity. And you know what? Lydia listened to that message and a strange thing happened. The Lord opened her heart. Look at what it says there. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened. Now at first glance, that's a rather peculiar phrase, whose heart the Lord opened. It seems maybe even a little mystical. But for a person to be saved, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're wondering about this matter of salvation. For a person to be saved, their heart needs to be opened to Christ. The word means to to be drawn or to, to be divided asunder. 
You say, well, how does this happen? How does it work out? How does this, how does this actually materialize? Well, uh, Hebrews 4 and 12 tells us that the word of God, the Bible, is quick, it's alive and powerful and uh, sharper than any two-edged sword that is piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and of the spirit and the joints and marrow and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Only the word of God has the power to open your heart tonight. Only the word of God has the power to reach your soul tonight. Only the spirit of God has the power to convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And maybe you've experienced that in the past. Maybe you've come to a gospel meeting and as the preacher was preaching your heart was burning within you. You could hear that thump, thump, thump of conviction and you knew what you needed to do. You knew that you needed to trust in the Savior, and yet you walked out the door still unsaved. Oh, don't make that mistake tonight, friend. You see, today if you hear his voice, the Bible says, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. You see, if the Holy Spirit should deal with you tonight and bring conviction to your soul tonight, the best thing you could do is to be converted. You say, I don't want to be a Baptist. I don't blame you. I'm a Baptist preacher. Nobody's asking you to be a Baptist. We're asking you to be a Christian. We're asking you to trust Christ. We're unashamed about it. You need to be converted to Christ. And this is this conviction which comes by the, the Holy Ghost is the means whereby the soul is converted. And the psalmist says, the law of the Lord, the word of God is perfect, converting the soul. Let's understand that a conversion took place in Lydia's heart that day when the Lord opened it. Let us understand that she was saved that day. Not by some ceremonial form. Not because somebody held her under water for a few moments and said a few words. Or somebody sprinkled water on her head. Or somebody anointed her with oil or did some other ceremonial act. No, she wasn't saved because she surrendered to some ceremony or some ordinance. She wasn't saved because she was praying a particular prayer. Listen, she was already praying before the Lord saved her but she was saved by believing the gospel and she experienced a life change she experienced a change within her inner person now as these four young people come to be baptized tonight they cannot and they did not point you to some religion they didn't say now listen if you'll join points past Baptist church you'll be saved no they didn't make that mistake They didn't say some Baptist pastor saved them. Probably good to have Pastor Crawford with us tonight. But they didn't say Pastor Crawford saved them. Or Pastor Anderson saved them. Or Pastor Moore saved them. And baptism itself won't save them. The best that baptism will do for them is get them wet. The Lord saved them. And it was... By his word that he opened up their hearts and brought them to a place where they recognized their need before him as a sinner. Where they saw as their standing before him was falling far short of his standard. That they would be required to give an account at his judgment throne. But that he in grace had sent his son to die for them. And they put their trust in that truth. They surrendered their hearts and their lives to Christ and were born again. A number of years ago, I had a man in my congregation. 
He had come out of Satanism. And he made a profession of faith. And then after a while he backslid. He went out into the world. And uh, one afternoon I was out visiting. A journalist phoned our home. And he said that he had met this man in a pub somewhere. And this man had told him how he had been saved. How they had gone to our church and had been saved. And he would wanted to interview me. Because he said that I was party to that. And so I said to Hazel, look, I'm not interested in talking to that journalist. Tell him to go away. Anyway, he wouldn't go away. The time I got home that evening, the journalist was sitting on the wall of my house with a photographer. I mean, it was like the paparazzi had come for the local Baptist pastor. And I, I just, you know, greeted them good day, went into my house and sat there for a while. And they just sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there. And my wife says, you better go out and talk to them or they're never going to go away. So I says, all right, I'll go and talk to them. So I invited the fellow in. He began his interview. He began to share well, this conversation he had with this individual. Began to tell how that he was involved in Satanism. And he says, and then you met him. And, and he says, you saved him. And I said, I didn't save him. He says, well, you, you told him about these things. I said, I did that. I says, but I didn't save him. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really you told him. So you, you saved him. And I said, no, I didn't save him. He says, well, he did talk to you about it, didn't he? And I said, yes, he did. He says, that was the moment his life changed. I said, yes, it was. He says, so you saved him. And finally, the photographer got really tired of this conversation. And he said to the journalist, for goodness sake, just write down what the man says. He says, Jesus saved him. And when it came to the article being printed in the press, sure enough, they had just one little line from me. And it just said, uh, Pastor Moore, we interviewed Pastor Moore, who said, Jesus saved him. Friends, that's the reality. If you're saved tonight, it's not because I saved you, or the church saved you, or baptism saved you. You're saved because Jesus saved you. He gets the glory. Now, look here and you have the mechanics of her conversion. Lydia heard the gospel. She listened as the, uh, as the Lord dealt with her. He opened up her heart. And finally, she attended onto the things that she had heard. She believed. Now, God may speak to your heart and you can turn him away. The Spirit of God may convince you of sin and you can turn him away. He may well speak to you of the truth of your own, uh, your own need and the reality of Christ's gift of salvation. And still, you may reject it. But in order to be saved, you need to heed the message. Hear the message, heed the message, believe the message. That's what Lydia did. That's what these four young people have done. And that is what you must do if you're going to find peace with God tonight. If you're going to find forgiveness of sin tonight. If you're going to find Christ as your Savior tonight. You need to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now notice how Lydia was baptized. Verse 15. When she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Now there's a number of assertions we can make from Lydia's baptism that affects what we believe on the matter of baptism and why we practice this particular method of baptism. First of all, we can safely say that as far as Lydia's baptism was concerned, it was an adult baptism. 
was the baptism of someone who was of an accountable age. I don't think that anyone would try to argue that Lydia was anything but a grown woman at this time. Certainly, no infant I know could possibly be equipped to run a textile business and no one would be so foolish as to believe that they could. Why then, we might ask, do some churches insist on baptizing infants when it's patently impossible for a child of that age to repent of his sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be converted? There is, and I, and I want to be respectful about this. I don't want you to go home with a flea in your ear. I don't want you to go home, you know, spitting teeth. You know, you, you've come for a baptism and we're very glad that you have. But I want to say this, and I say it respectfully. And I want you to think about it. There is not a solitary instance in all of the New Testament of an infant being baptized anywhere, anytime. Not one. You know, I was a little bold a few weeks ago. I, I said I would give a thousand pounds to anybody in our church who could prove the text, who could bring a text to me that showed an infant being baptized. I have to tell you, there were two chancers tried it on. Neither one of them was rewarded with the gift of the, or with the, the praise. You know, I don't make an offer like that and, and then fear that I'm going to lose the money. I'm confident you're not going to find such an instance. And some people will say, well, what about this? It says here she was baptized in her household. There must have been children in her household. Surely there was children in her family. Listen, if I was to baptize my whole family tonight, the youngest member would be 29. And I would suggest it was the same with Lydia's house. You say, well, where, where does it say that? It says it in the same place where it says there's an infant in the household. In other words, you can't argue from silence. The fact of the matter is that where scripture specifically shows you a baptism, only adults are in view. Only people of accountable age. Look back with me to Acts chapter 8 for a moment and verse 12. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, we read of the ministry of the evangelist Philip. And in verse 12, it says this concerning Philip and baptism. It says, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Notice what it says, both men and women. It doesn't say men and women and children. It doesn't say men and women and infants. It just says men and women. People who are old enough to believe the message that they have heard. The command to be baptized is a command to be, that is given to people who are old enough to understand the import of it, who are of an accountable age, who may make an informed decision to follow the Lord and indeed to follow his command. So we say, first of all, that Lydia's baptism was an adult baptism. Secondly, we say it was a post-salvation or post-conversion baptism. Lydia's heart had already been converted. She had already experienced the change that Christ brings into our lives. This is the New Testament order. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Notice what it says. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. You have to be old enough to be able to receive his word. 
You have to be accountable enough to be able to answer to God in respect to his word. You have to be of an age where you can make that vital decision. No one was ever baptized in New Testament times who was not, first of all, one who had trusted Christ as their savior. And then I would say to you, not only was it an adult baptism and a post-conversion baptism, but it was a full immersion baptism. That's what the word baptize means. Check it out. If you look up the Greek word baptizo, it means to immerse, to submerge, to dip. It always means that. It never means to pour or to sprinkle. It never means that. The Bible uses entirely different Greek words when it speaks of pouring and sprinkling. The New Testament word is always about submersion and immersion and dipping. If you think about, again, in Acts chapter 8 and verses 38 and 39, you have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I want you to listen carefully to the wording. It says, And he, Philip, commanded the chariot to stand still. Now listen to what it says. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water. Hear what it says? They went down both into the water. Now, with respect, I have yet to see anybody who went down into a christening font. It simply doesn't happen. You couldn't get into it if you tried. So evidently, in this instance, they both went into the water. Now, if it was just a case of pouring or sprinkling, surely Philip would have just reached over, took a little bit of water on his fingertips and sprinkled them. If it was a question of pouring, he'd have taken a cup and brought out a little bit of water and poured it over his head. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that they both went down into the water and when they were come up, out of the water. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go into the water and out of the water with our candidates this evening. And why are we going to do that? Because it's an expression of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. You see, when the candidate goes down, he's showing the death of Christ. He's effectively dying. When he goes under the water, he's showing the burial of Christ. There is no life-giving properties in this water. Understand this water is an instrument of death. If I should put Luke Jackson under this water and forget what to say and hold him there long enough, it's not going to be a good end, is it? It's an element of death. Don't worry, Luke, I'll bring you back up. But when he comes back up again, he is picturing the resurrection of Christ. That's what you're seeing. Death, burial, resurrection. And he and the others are saying, I have died with Christ. I am buried with Christ. I am living a new life in Christ. That's what this ordinance is about. That's why God insists that it is done by this means. It's a full immersion baptism. And it's a public baptism. You know, the likelihood is that Lydia was baptized right there and then 
in the very river at which she and others had been praying a little time before. Imagine the surprise of those who were watching, of those who were spectating as this prominent businesswoman steps out into the water and openly identifies with Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior of Israel, and as her Savior, and she is plunged into the water. I wonder what they made of that that day. You know, tonight our baptism also is a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. It's saying something to every one of us who are here observing. To those of you who are not Christians, it's saying, listen, there's a Savior who died for you, was buried and rose again the third day, and he stands ready to save you, if you will, but call upon him. To those who are unbaptized as believers, it says, you know what? I'm obeying Christ and following his word, following his command, and you should do that also. And to the church as a whole, it's saying, I'm joining with you in taking a public stand for and with Jesus Christ. I trust you'll join with me this evening in wishing these four young people every blessing in their Christian walk and agreeing as a church family to pray with them and to pray for them and to encourage them as they seek to serve the Lord. But perhaps you're here tonight and you're not yet saved. Let me say this to you as we close. If you're here tonight, you have not yet personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're here this evening and you cannot say with any degree of confidence that you know you've been born again by the Spirit of God, let me encourage you this evening like Lydia to hear the message, to allow the Lord to open your heart and to attend onto the things that you have heard, to believe for yourself, to trust Jesus as your own. Maybe you're a Christian who's here tonight and you need to be scripturally baptized. Then I want to encourage you to do the right thing and obey the Lord. Now you don't have to do it tonight. But let me tell you something. If you come forward. And you say I would like to be baptized pastor. We'll leave the water in the tank. And we'll do it again next week. Why not choose this evening to obey the Lord. And to follow his command. Let's sing our final hymn this evening. And then we'll get to the act of baptism. Actually, no, we don't want to sing our final hymn this evening. Otherwise, it would be the final hymn. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, automatic pilot there. What we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and have, our young, have the uh, candidates go and prepare and get ready for baptism. I'm going to turn over to Nigel, and he'll take over the service from this point on, and then we'll see you in a few moments in the tank. Okay?